Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks, John. Well, these uh, these magi, they're so well known, aren't they? So well known. We can miss what uh, Matthew is uh, trying to communicate to us by telling us of their journey all the way to Jerusalem. Typically, uh, the way these things work, the more you hear about something, the more likely you are to understand it. But when a story like this has an unexpected component to it, it can work the other way around. Actually, the more you hear about it, the less likely you are to see what was meant to be a surprise. Uh, Some of you will know that I quite like zany science fiction. And there's an idea in one of Douglas Adams' stories that illustrates this common human problem with familiarity, making it hard to see the unexpected. Uh, Adams describes an invisibility field that made anything hidden from observers, uh, and this uh, uh, sort of technique functioned by the object itself being as impossible as could be conceived. And so the human mind determined that since what was happening could not really be happening, it was simpler for it to pretend that it was not happening. And so unless you knew that it was there already and looked very carefully, your mind performed a sort of trick on itself to prevent mental overload by the presence of something which it considered outrageously impossible. Uh, This invisibility field was called SEP, or the Someone Else's Problem Invisibility Field. 
The magi, these magi, are a bit like that. We are so familiar with them that they're often sidetracked by elements uh, which are not that surprising uh, by our minds. And actually not really why Matthew is telling us about the Magi. Uh, We become fascinated, perhaps, with the potential difficulty of explaining the star in a credible way. Which, while there is no universally agreed solution, there are several perfectly good ones. Whether you think it was something simply supernatural or a supernova, or a particular astrological constellation, or a sighting of what we now know as Halley's Comet. Different people have different views, but one way or another, the phenomenon of the star is intellectually credible, yet we can become so fascinated by that in our minds, that familiar debate, that we miss why Matthew is actually telling us about the Magi. Or perhaps the Magi themselves sidetrack us. Uh, Were there really three, as was traditionally thought? But there is no reason in the text itself to think there were three other than the three gifts that they gave. In fact, one ancient commentator went so far as to say there are more than a dozen. Or whether, you know, precisely uh, where they came from, perhaps, whether it's that. We, We know it's from the East... So, uh, you know, Persia or Babylon, perhaps, where wise men called Magi are known to have existed from biblical records in Daniel, the biblical book, or records outside of the Bible. Some of which, these Magi, were charlatans and tricksters, but others reputed wise men of the ancient world who developed understanding in various branches of ancient knowledge. All along, our familiarity of the story is actually in our minds, sidetracking us from the huge, unexpected presence in the story itself. It's a bit like some of those well-known Christmas songs that people sing, and then they get so familiar that you can almost sort of bleep over the words and switch in other words that go with the same rhyme. Perhaps you've done that yourself. I know I have. I'm sure you shouldn't in church, but I have. And even some which are perhaps you don't normally sing in church, like Deck the Halls, you know. Deck the Halls with Buddy Holly and, uh, and the like. Uh, on the first day of Christmas, my tulip gave to me, you know. Uh, T.S. Eliot, in his poem, The Journey of the Magi, comes a little closer to the inner surprising meaning, the unexpected meaning of this story of the Magi. He he writes like this, all this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down this, set down this, were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly, we had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. An alien people no longer at ease clutching their gods. See, this account of the Magi is told by Matthew to show us Something unexpected, surprising even. 
And often we look at this story and we look at it as a comparison between King Jesus, humble in the major, and King Herod, angrily seeking to stop the work of God by fair means or foul. And certainly in Matthew's account, his story later, that comparison is the point. When Herod acts in royal power, he kills children. When God acts in royal power, he comes as a humble child. But here in this passage, the comparison is not primarily between Herod and Jesus. It's between Herod and the Magi. It's between Herod and the Jerusalem people with all their opportunities and the Magi from the east who are the ones who realize the meaning of Christmas. And it's showing us how unexpected, how, yes, surprising it is. Who responds to Christmas? Why it is that they respond to Christmas and what it is that causes them to do so and how we need to listen then carefully to the otherwise familiar story So that we don't just construct a sort of invisibility field and miss the huge impossibility which is at the center of the story. Herod the the Magi. First, there is Herod. You see Herod there. Herod does not respond to the message of Christmas as God wants us to respond to the humble infant child. He responds with fear, with jealousy, with suspicion. He thinks that the infant king has come to take away his kingdom. He is insecure of uh, his claim to the crown at Jerusalem. He has a dubious claim to the uh, royal lineage and even ethnicity, and he wonders whether it will now be called into question. And everyone else in Jerusalem is disturbed too by this news, that there has been born a king of the Jews in David's ancestral home of Bethlehem, because by now Herod, towards the end of his reign, has revealed his paranoia killing his two sons and his wife to protect his throne. And so there's great disturbance in Jerusalem. The thought of what this news of another potential rival to Herod, even a baby, and perhaps the court that could gather around that baby, how Herod would act if he viewed that as a threat. So there's Herod. Herod does not respond to Christmas as God would wish. He misses the humility. He sees in the story a threat to his established position. He sees a power move where there is weakness. He sees aggression where there is love. He sees hate where there is kindness. But why? Herod had the Scriptures. He gathers most learned theological scholars and leaders of his age to instruct him. He has the Bible. He has the best Bible teachers. And these Bible teachers explain to him accurately that there will be a shepherd of Israel coming from Bethlehem. He has the Scriptures. If anyone should respond correctly to Christmas, you would think it would be the person who reads the right Orthodox books, who listens to the best podcast of sermons gathers around him the greatest Bible scholars and has them explain to him the real meaning of Christmas. He has the Bible. What's more, he also has the opportunity. Herod is not one of those people who's living a long way away from the center of things. He's right there in the center. He's surrounded by religion. He's in Jerusalem, the very center and heart of the biblical lands and message where there is the temple. 
and all the religious infrastructure and the history and all that goes with the great center of preaching and religion and a city designed to be a place to which people would come to worship God from all the nations, a center of training and worship. There he is in Wheaton, I suppose you might say. He has the Bible. He's in Jerusalem. But yet Herod does not understand it. Now we have to remove our familiarity and visibility field to realize just how astonishing this is. Of course you might say Herod's an evil man, but yes, but here he is presented with every opportunity not to be. He's been taught the Bible. He lives in Jerusalem. He has access to all the knowledge. You see, sometimes people say something like this today, don't they? That it's unfair for God to reveal himself in the Bible and just through Jesus when there are people all around the world who live without Scripture and without opportunity. But Herod had Scripture, and he had opportunity. He had the Bible, and he had the teaching of the Bible, and the greatest center of religious worship known to man and designed by God, Jerusalem herself. Yet Herod did not get it This is an enormous surprise. Matthew is saying that just because we are in worship buildings, just because we are in Jerusalem, just because we hear Bible teaching, does not mean that we will be the ones who truly see this unexpected event taking place in Bethlehem. We cannot assume that familiarity with the account of Christmas is the same as being impacted by the meaning of the Christ child. We cannot assume that knowing about that infant child means that we will receive Jesus into our hearts. We cannot assume that being in Jerusalem means we worship as Jerusalem was meant to do. It's good to have knowledge, of course. It's good to have opportunity. It's good to have the Bible. It's good to have uh, Bible teaching. It's not enough. Faith comes from hearing. There needs to be faith. To be openness of heart. Be worship. And the people who show us that are the Magi. Now, we've heard so much about them that we can miss their point through familiarity too. I I rather like the story of Dumbledore in the first Harry Potter book when he told Harry what he really wanted for Christmas. Perhaps you remember that. Dumbledore said, One can never have enough socks... Enough, another Christmas has come and gone, and I didn't get a single pair. People will insist on giving me books. <laughs> we assume that what God wants from us at Christmas is more theological insight, or expertise, or a greater understanding of the eschatological consummation of the Perusia. Perhaps instead, He wants us to put into practice what we already know. After all, the Magi did not know very much. 
Unlike Herod, we may assume they did not have access to Scripture. They had heard of the Jewish nation, and perhaps they had read some bare text about the royal king, for they had interpreted the sign of the star in such a way that shows some knowledge, but it's, it's not much, it's very little. They're like the Persian man I met who introduced himself to me, saying that he had been praying that God would send him someone to tell him about Jesus. He knew who Jesus was, and he wanted to know more about him. These magi knew that a king had been born king of the Jews, and they knew this had an implication, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. They knew enough to journey, but no more. Their knowledge in comparison to the great knowledge of all the chief priests and teachers of the law was scant and measly. What is more, they had very little opportunity. Unlike Herod and the religious leaders of that time, they did not live in the great religious center of their age. They lived a long way away, out east in the land of mysticism and paganism, strange religious rites. There are hints of their odd fascination with astrological predictions and their following of the star. God is sovereign over these things and then, as now, can use a dream, a star, an instinct, an intuition, a peace trial, a dream of Jesus to draw people to Jesus. But but they uh, they were not kosher. They were not from the normal group of people you would expect to discover at a Christmas Eve service. Their skin color was different, perhaps. Their clothes were strange. It's not unusual for the birth of great kings then to have been accorded the prestige of foreign visits. Pliny, the Roman historian, records something similar happening to a great Roman uh, birth, uh, people coming from Armenia. It was not that they journeyed that's so unexpected. Pax Romana had made such journeys feasible in the ancient world at this time, even at night as they followed the star. It was who journeyed and for whom these strange magi, priests or wise men or astrologers or scientists from the east coming to Jerusalem to seek the one born king of the Jews. It was unexpected because they had so little opportunity and so little Scripture to guide them. Yet, unlike Herod and the people of Jerusalem at the time, they were not disturbed by one born king of the Jews, but instead they worshipped. Actually, the word is repeated three times by Matthew in this passage. They told Herod that they had come to worship. Herod falsely pretends that he wants to worship too. And then when the Magi arrive at the Nativity, they truly worship. And not just any kind of worship, but as it were, a full-on Eastern hijinks. You see what it says? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a lot, right? It doesn't say they were moderately pleased to see Jesus. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They clapped their hands. They slap each other's backs. They shout aloud. And then they go in, fall down. And worship. How do we know they worshipped? 
They offer Jesus gifts. Much has been written about these gifts, but the point of them is really quite simple. They were expensive. Perhaps it's uh, not overly sentimental for us to impute to these gifts that their meaning was gold for Jesus' royalty, frankincense for Jesus' worship, and myrrh as the spice for Jesus' burial. But, but it is saying that all this was in their minds before they even arrived. But at any rate, the point of them is that they were costly. They were not cheap gifts. They did not turn up to worship Jesus and put out of their pockets a few coins and a dollar bill here or there as leftovers from the meal. Jesus to them was not worth a restaurant meal or two that week. They gave him gold. Perhaps that was the best investment in that economy as well. precise worth of these gifts is difficult to calculate because we do not know how much gold, frankincense, or myrrh. What we do know is that assuming they were not so small that Mary would have needed a magnifying glass to observe them, and we know they are not for they opened their treasures, that is large boxes containing these gifts, then what was presented would have been a significant fortune. The Magi understood that worship was not just lip service, but life service. Herod offered his so-called worship as a ruse to find Jesus and get him out of the way so that his throne was not threatened by this newborn king of the Jews. Herod had all the knowledge, all the scriptures, all the teaching, all the opportunity. The Magi from the East, Persians, Babylonians, traveled, turned up as foreigners outside of God's people with nothing to go on but a hint about the king of the Jews who had come for the whole world, a nudge and a wink from strange starlight apparition, a confirmation from the scripture that they should go to Bethlehem, a strange star stopping over Bethlehem, asking the people in Bethlehem who had heard about this birth from the shepherds who had gone around telling everyone about it in their raucous shepherd fashion, and then they shout, and shall we say, dance a jig, rejoice exceedingly with great joy as starlight reveals their guileless faces. And they go into the place where he was laid, and they fall down and worship him, offering him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. While Herod is trying to take his life, the Magi are giving their lives for him. Perhaps uh, you remember uh, the Far Side cartoon by Gary Larson. I, I quite enjoy those cartoons. Uh, sometimes they're not only funny but meaningful, though to be honest, sometimes they're just funny, right? Uh, Larson has one cartoon about the wise men that I rather like. He, he depicts in it three wise men standing at the nativity offering their gifts, you see. And there they are with all their traditional kind of clothes and etc. And then there is in this cartoon a fourth wise man 
who's looking disappointed. And then along with the cartoon, there is this caption. Unbeknownst to most theologians, there was a fourth wise man who was turned away for bringing fruitcake. It's <laughs> great, isn't it? Matthew tells us the story of the Magi to show us what true worship means. Paul put it like this in his letter to the Romans. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. So our worship is in view of God's mercy as we focus all our loving attention upon the supreme gift of God at Christmas, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a feeding trough for cows. As we do that, we offer up everything, our bodies as living sacrifices. It's our whole lives and the way we act, think, do, say, and give. Matthew tells us the story of the Magi to show us that true worship is not about how much we know. Herod had access to far more knowledge than the Magi, as did the chief priests and the teachers of the law. It's about what we do with what we do know. We may be able to articulate the incarnation in precision and profundity, sufficient for a Jerusalem PhD. But then come along the Magi. Following an astrological prediction based upon a conjunction in the heavens of all things. And they get it right. And they are there first in the nativity scene. And they give gifts of royalty, priestliness, and prediction of this baby born to die. He will save his people from their sins. That's the Magi for you. What would it be like if we, with all our knowledge... Put all that into practice. The sky is the limit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this... uh, story of the Magi and what they show us about true worship, putting that into practice. Father, I pray this morning that we will be so focused on your mercy, the gift of the Christ child, that we would receive him in our hearts,
and live lives of worship as a consequence. Would you by your spirit call us to fall down and worship? In the name of Jesus, amen.